no one's looking for an advisor to give you an investment portfolio. You can do that with a robo-advisor. The, 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 the cream, which has risen to the top, is they want their advisor to listen to them and empathize with them. Deborah Morrison took a trip to Manhattan, New York, to see the New York Stock Exchange when she was younger, and her outlook on the financial industry was forever changed. With the pink slips up to their kneecaps, Deborah knew she wanted to take part in the excitement of this industry. And at the young age of 21, Deborah led her agency and started her career in the financial industry. Deborah is an advocate for helping women get comfortable in the financial industry and empowering women to jump into the conversation. Deborah answers the firing questions about women struggling to find their voice within their finances. She also dives into being irrational and the emotions women face when entering the financial conversation. Deborah Morrison is a financial coach at Women Navigating Finances. She's also a CFP and a certified grief coach, and she brings a ton of gold to the podcast this week. Let's get over to hearing Deborah Morrison. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Deborah Morrison, welcome to Bridging the Gap. How are you today? How's everything going on your side? I'm great, Matt. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm excited to go down this journey with you. I mean, your experience both as a coach and as an advisor is going to provide such insight, I think, to to all of our listeners. And, and what you're doing in, in terms of empowering women with their financial situation, I think, is such a needed thing and a needed advocate in the industry and in the world that we have today. So I'm ecstatic to get into that. You know, before we even dive into your background, the lessons you've learned, you know, we're going to talk about behavioral psychology. We're going to talk about a little bit of everything. How did you get to where you are today? What Tell us about your journey to, to where you are today. Well, thanks, Matt. It was a humble beginning. I was raised on a 100-acre beef cattle farm in western Pennsylvania, right on the Ohio border, and we did a lot of work. No one had to teach me a work ethic. I was always kind of interested in money because my grandfather was a stock market investor. And he handed me some shares of stock and his hands were literally trembling. And, and he said, don't sell these Debbie, you know, in the day until you have to. And I just, I mean, he wasn't an emotional man at all. And I just saw the hands trembling and I was just like, there's more to that than a piece of paper. And it was solidified when my aunt brought us to New Jersey and took us into Manhattan and showed us the, the wall, uh, the, the uh, New York stock exchange, excuse me. And in those days you walked across the top and, and my nose was like pressed against the plexiglass. And I just saw all that chaos down there, that that shouting and the throwing of in the day paper tickets up to their shins and then their kneecaps. And and, and I looked, at, I, I could hardly, you know, they wanted me to keep going because people were behind us. And I was just like looking and looking. And I said to myself right then and there, I don't think I'm really going to be interested in doing all that shouting, but there's some energy there I am wanting to have a part of. And from then on, I was just bitten by this money is energy bug. And from there, I took business in college and decided I wanted to learn investments. Of course, my grandfather was a stock market investor during the Great Depression. And of course, I went to a number of brokerage houses and a number of insurance companies. And they're like, 21-year-old girl, why don't you... Why don't you sell life insurance? And I think they thought I would just be in the door and out the door, right? Within like, you know, I don't want to see average seven days, 10 days. <laughs> and I said, what is life insurance exactly? And they explained the, 
the attributes of the policy makeup and so forth. And I said to myself, you know, this keeps families together. This keeps businesses together. And I said, all right, you know, this is something I believe in. And of course I bought my own policy first. I've never sold anything I didn't buy, uh, both figuratively and literally. And I led the agency as a 21 year old girl. I mean, I was carrying a you know, rosewood out of shape in one hand and a towel to wipe the wet behind my ear, you know, dealing with people three times my age, you know, and and led the agency. And then finally, after two years, I went in the corner office and I said, I think I actually said, boys, now let's talk about investments. <laughs> and so then I got my series seven. I just skipped right through six. I mean, who wants that? I got my seven. I sold stocks. I became a registered principal. I was managing 28 mostly guys, white, old white men under me, and went through uh, a, a tra- trajectory met through insurance companies because they did a lot of fact finding. And I found that very, very substantive and then morphed into financial planning. And then when 1999, when fee only financial planning became an option, I just said to myself, I have no choice because I never want someone to be thinking or saying, What's in this for you, Deborah? If I buy this big fat life insurance policy, what's in it for you? And so I became a fee only planner in 1999. I mean, we were out there at the beginning with the machete. I mean, it, these were not, you know, you know, we were not, people weren't breaking down the doors to give up trail commissions. I, I, I walked away from nearly six figures of trail commissions. All I had to do January 1 was wake up. And I would get trail commissions. So now when I, you know, in practice, I practiced 42 years and and it was child labor. But now when I introduced myself as a practicing fee only fiduciary planner, you know, I'd have people like on a plane seat and say, oh, yeah, my nephew does the same thing. He's with Merrill Lynch. And I'm thinking "Mm, pregnant, not pregnant, really very different. Right. (laughs) So in any event, that's kind of a long story to how I got started. And then in 2020, I said to myself, self, you know, I think there's a different chapter for you now. And I sold my practice to my trusted associate. And I have been serving women as a financial coach ever since on empowering them, up-leveling their confidence so that they can get comfortable with this thing called money and use money as the tool it was meant to be used for, which is to basically assure us that we don't have to quote unquote worry about an income stream or an upcoming bill, right? You know, the journey, by the way, I, I, I would love to hear someone of, you know, that's eight, nine or 10, that's going to do a, a tour of the New York Stock Exchange today and how different it will be. I mean, I just know I, I, I was there towards the, the later half of, of the pink slips and up to the ankles and the knees and and it was just a different vibe. And then I recently went and I was close to it again and it was like, yawn boring like yes where is all the fun let's go over into the pit and let's start let's start yelling and back the energy wasn't there which is so it's just it's just a different world with technology and i love that 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 story that led you to where you are and you know i i i'm i'm a huge fan of what you're doing with empowering women with their financial lives and I, I want to dig into that for a second because I, I want to understand from your perspective, right? I, I say, move all the headlines, move all the talking heads away. From your perspective, why, why is this such a need, one? And why do women not feel financially empowered today, two? And then on top of that, what can we all do to help you on this mission to help empower more women 
with their financial lives because we should all be doing that. Indeed, indeed. And of course, everybody says, well, they should teach this in school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet I'm really dealing, Matt, a lot with maybe some of your viewers' moms, right? So I'm dealing with people north of age 55, women particularly, who have been socialized in an era that's different even from my socialization. They've been socialized in an era, and I gave a whole TEDx talk on this, build a financial fear and do it anyway. Don't worry your little head about that, Betty. Bob will handle it, right? And I say, that would be okay if Bob didn't die prematurely or come to home one day and trade you in for two thirties. <laughs> and, you know, so, so, so often older women have, have leaned on their male partner to quote unquote handle the finances. And as I say, that would be okay if the average age of widowhood wasn't 55 mm. and the divorce rate North of 52, 53, depending on first, second or third marriages. But it is, and it is. So when we are dealing with women who basically, for the most part, played the role they were expected to play in society and were the arm candy, if you will, not only to be demeaning, but they were basically supportive, and then their husbands die or divorce them, you can't, we cannot expect these women to you know, turn on a dime and say, wow, what will I do with these? You know, mm -hmm. it's just not going to happen because when we have a comeuppance like death or divorce, it is an emotional event, highly emotional. Event. And so what I learned in neuro-linguistic programming training, of which I'm a master pr practitioner, when emotions are high, intellect is low and vice versa. So when intellect is high, emotions are low. Now, if we get you know, premature death, this divorce, something that's really unexpected or untimely, if you will, sudden. Our emotions are peak, peak. And at the very same time, I see a lot of widows, and I'm a certified grief coach as well. I coach a lot of widows through, let's separate that out. Let's cry. Let's emote. And let's emote fully. Because tears are a shower for our soul. We need to feel to heal. Let's emote. And then sometimes I actually say, let's set a timer. Let's, let's set a timer for 30 minutes from now. And when it goes off, if we're done emoting, we say, okay. And now it's almost like you bring in new furniture. Now we're going to talk about money. We're going to use our, our brains, our intellect. And so often people smush them together, which ruins the emoting. And it ruins the thinking. <laughs> so I say, do both and never together. So with that in mind, I know that women typically have not had the underpinning. And, and then you add to that, Matt, the, the reticence women have to making a mistake. Now, I, I understand fully that it's just folly to do gender uh, stereotyping. And yet there's a reason for it, some of that, you know, so sometimes it's more true than not. And so like guys will be out, the, you know, running around, they'll, they'll fall, they'll skin their knee, they'll get up, you know, they'll slap each other in the back and, and they'll keep going. Right. And women like, I mean, I had a person draw me, you know, how a woman, you know, gets information, you know, she, she likes, she wool gathers, wool gathers, wool gathers, asks all of her friends, looks around, reads, boom, 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 boom. and then she comes up against a little bit of a problem right here, right? And then, and, and now a guy typically will just come up against the problems. Like, okay, what, hiccup. Okay, keep going. 
No, no. She'll go right back to the beginning because she thinks everything on which she had built those presumptions is now false just because something came in her path that she either wasn't expected or thought was wrong. And so there's this sense of perfectionism in women that I don't typically find in their male counterparts. And that perfection causes women to be a little, well, or a lot paralyzed. And we Mm. can't move forward in paralysis, period. You know, emotion, and you talk about it in regards to losing a spouse, divorce, in that is one scenario, but you know something that we talk about a lot on this podcast that we write about a lot is psychology and how when you are emotional, which headlines and social media and everything in the world today makes us more emotional than ever before because of our access to information and the 24-hour kind of breaking news a genre that we're in right. that emotions when you are emotional there is a part into you what you know there's a part of your brain that just does not work and that's your no rational way. reasonable thinking part of your brain no and way. so you start making irrational decisions that you feel guilty for when you become rational again because but but we are so hard-headed that mm-hmm. we cannot overcome that because we want to be right and we can't admit that we're wrong even when we get into the rational state and so I think that there's you know a lot of similarities to what advisors are dealing with with their general clients, whether it's a male or a female, mm-hmm. with regards to emotions that you're helping females get over in this specific situation. But to the second point that I'll say, and, and I'd just be curious on, on your thoughts on it, I think advisors should be focused on this all the time with the spouses of their clients. If they're dealing with the male, this is something that can be powerful and value-added of taking this perspective to help talk to the female spouse if you're not if they're not the main spouse which right or wrong that it just tends to not be the main spouse in the relationship in a financial advisor relationship that we see but you should be bringing them in to help them understand their emotions understand their the finances because you know that there is a high likelihood that the undesirable inevitable is going to happen and yes. And I think that that's how advisors can help with this is bring the spouse involved, educate, train, involve them so that we can make them more empowered when that situation happens in the future. Yeah. It's so powerful um, in that mentality, right? We we don't – we – to the idea of perfectionism that you mentioned earlier, we feel we have to – make every right step because the one mistake is going to change our life trajectory forever. And it's completely wrong because everything nature itself provides us with everything for a reason. And we would never get to where we are without the mistakes that we made. Now it hurts in the moment, right? And I think that that goes into communication. And I, I think that this is why, and I'm a big proponent of it. I write about it. I talk about it a lot of, an advisor's job is to be a great communicator, to your point, right, is to be a great communicator. And it's to be a psychologist because, you know, everybody thinks, well, if my money goes down, I'll never be able to retire. If I sell a stock that has a loss, I'm never going to be able to reach my retirement. And that's just, and, you know, they think that the, the world's coming to an end with the great you know, great recession, which was terrible, right? The pandemic was fear was caused a lot of fear. But if you take a step out and look at your rational, and if you just are rational, 
you see that there has been actually worse situations in the past and they were able to make it through. And so, you know, to that point, you know, as a financial advisor, giving coaching advice to a financial advisor, how can advisors be better communicators to help clients be more at peace with the known volatility that's going to happen, whether it's today, tomorrow, next year, it doesn't matter. It's going to happen. How can advisors be better communicators with both males and females, but maybe yep. more specifically with the spouse? Yeah, I'm looking around because I have I had a uh, poster. It was, it was hysterically funny, uh, and it's and it's like like men in a boardroom, right? And like a guy has a whiteboard and he's talking, and everybody's saying, like the standard and poor and little conversation bubbles, and and you know the, the recovery and this and that and the Dow and and it says you know my clients aren't even talking about that you know this is what we know you know this is what we're ready to give out but my clients aren't even they're not even asking about this stuff and so i think to the extent that advisors can be better interviewers questioning asking questions and literally listening to the answers and i asked a wonderful question that i was given in some master coaching master degree coaching of uh, strategic coach with dan sullivan and he asked the relationship factor question. And I'm telling you, this is a beauty. If you, if you, your listeners are financial advisors, take a pen and pad. Oh, come on. Hit record on your smartphone. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Matt, let's say you and I are sitting across from each other March 30th, 2025. Three years from now. And I were to ask you to, to, just look back on the past three years. What needs to have happened for you personally, professionally, spiritually, for you to be happy with your progress? I wrote down the exact words my clients said. I said to them first, I've never met a couple of any makeup that had similar answers. So I'm going to ask you to make your answer and you devise your answer. And then I want to hear both of the answers. And I wrote down on the left, the left partner, on the right, the right partner's answers. And when I did the follow-up letter, I said, and Bill, you said that this and that and that. And Jane, you said to have that second home and to be able to provide. And they came back with such respect and gratitude that I heard them that it really made the relationship completely rich and it gave a lot of meaning to then the process that I was going to introduce because I had heard the concerns, I heard the dreams, I teased out the dreams, and now we're going to position the assets to match that set of goals. And I think that that would be a a great question for everybody to to use. Absolutely incredible, right? It's a matter of people are always thinking about the next question to ask as opposed to being empathetic and listening, right? Listening to hear, not to fix, listening to hear, not to fix. And, you know, advisors want to share all of their knowledge about the markets and the economy and the charts and everything of that nature. And, you know, what, what that question does is it changes the conversation basically forever because now you you've now vis- you've helped them visualize what the future needs to be right and now everything every action you take can go back to say are we helping this or are we hurting this it doesn't matter what the market is doing are we making progress towards this 
And that changes the relationship you have with clients when you can now have conversations about, are we making progress despite what's going on in the world and what has going on with your, with your portfolio? Because now you're controlling what you can control and you can't really control the markets. And that's such a powerful question to help. I mean, why, why do you think it's so hard for advisors to ask that question? Why do you think it's so hard for advisors to listen in your perspective? And when you were training, I mean, you had 30, 40 people underneath you. I mean, what, what was their hurdle? They just, they, they didn't want to hear something negative. Why, why do they not ask that question more often? That's you're hitting on an interesting point. I think that people are a little allergic to to nervousness and and, and sadness and and potential grief and so forth and so on. I, I don't, we as a society do not deal with grief well in this United States of America, and and yet I also think that advisors feel and up until a few years ago, much of the training was just around the nuts and the bolts and the standard and poor and the recovery rate and the average return of a stock market investor versus the average return of the standard and poor over a certain period of time. And of course, the the return of the average investor is about half of what the indexes would have given if they had just kept their hands off of it, right? I think the relationship is, is best formulated when advisors shape the expectations of clients of their prospective clients and 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 it, it was I, I am very much and always was just like out there i'm completely outside the box thinker when people would be in front of me i would say to them and they hadn't even signed the contract yet right remind yourself they're ready to sign the contract and i'm not commissioned anymore i'm i'm fee only the, the minimum fee would be $10,000 a year so it's not, we're we're not talking about a small decision People wouldn't even have signed on yet, but they're ready to. And I say, now I want you to understand, when you contract with me and this firm, you will lose money. And, and I shut up. And they're like, look at each other. Like, why is she saying that? Because I cannot control when you open their statement or you go online and you see the balance in an account and it happens to be on that day and that moment lower than the amount that we invested in that particular investment. And I can assure you that is going to happen. And I'm telling you what, it's like people are just like, oh, okay. Okay. Just so long as, you know, we get the boat in five years or the kids get educated or we get that lake house that we've been dreaming about or the around the world vacations. The aspect of putting the emphasis on the right syllable is ultimately what separates good life centered planners from people who are basically doing a little bit of blocking and tackling and and maybe figuring out modern portfolio theory to even devise an asset allocation that has a halfway good chance of through Monte Carlo probability analysis giving clients the the results that they are wishing for. So <laughs> rather than getting into things that are like totally weedy necessarily, I want to suggest that when clients have the expectation that the stock market is only for seven plus years. Yes, you can make money in less than that, just like real estate, but you want to not expect to. Hmm. So I make everyday analogies and it works for women. Like an, if you're making a chocolate cake and it says 350 oven for 50 minutes and you throw all those good ingredients in and your time and energy to make it and you put it in the oven and 10 minutes you get real curious and you open the door and you jerk it out. Not going to be a good chocolate cake, right? So we know enough as women to follow a recipe. And yet 
I want to suggest that maybe the advisor hasn't shaped your expectations so that we're going to actually segment your money. And some of it is going to be for a goal that you can't even see now because it's around two or three unexpected bends. But let's just say it's down the road. So don't get your panties in a wad about it. That is just going to rock and roll because here's what happened the last 80 years. And you know, Mark Twain said history may not repeat itself, but it'll surely rhyme. So don't be concerned about that volatility because you're not going to play that game. You're not going to get caught in that riptide. We're going to have plenty of dry powder here to sustain you through the evolution of the markets. And they will dip and they will surge and they will do so again and again. You know, setting expectations, it's so simple I know. to do, but yet so hard for advisors to do. Because if you just set expectations, yeah. realistic expectations, and you continue to set those throughout the conversations you have with clients, then you are positioning yourself to gain more trust and gain and have less fearful clients and less stress on you, right? And it's just something that is such a simple piece of advice for advisors that is so difficult for them to follow. And, you know, I think about a lot of, you know, with setting expectations, it's hinged on what we've been talking about with communication. And then I think about the world we're in today. And, you know, you've been, you know, an advisor and a coach for years, and you've seen transitions within the world, right? You you went from wirehouse to fee only, you went from the tech boom and bust to the great re- recession to pandemic, right? You've seen a lot of these, but there's something happening in the world today with technology and innovation. And you think about crypto and NFTs, and we're not going to dive into what those are, but advisors have to help navigate multiple different challenges and set the appropriate educa- expectations to their clients and also communicate it effectively. What did you find successful when you had challenging, changing times, when the tides were changing, mm-hmm. how did you find it effective to communicate with your clients to keep them at bay, keep them sleeping well at night, and continue to stay true to their their strategy that you put in place when things were good? As a fee-only planner, our agenda and our training, first of all, we had continuing education credits in in you know law and tax and budgeting, cash flow and risk management and all that investments. And it's not like a broker, you know, who doesn't have that breadth of uh, knowledge, if you will. And so it was a very comfortable situation with our clients because we met them where they lived, right? Mm. Uh, I I know an advisor here in New Jersey and just at a cocktail party years ago, she said a client of mine asked her, she says, well, you know, how would you treat this? Because I had just said something about, okay, we'll take this money out for the vacation and stuff. And she goes, oh, I, I don't, I don't advise my clients take money out. You know, I just keep building the portfolio. Yeah, great. Your commission's based upon how much they have in the portfolio. How about life? Because I'm a certified grief coach and we don't have to be a certified grief coach. I mean, we just have to have an imagination or maybe, you know, open up the obituaries every day. I'm thinking that probably 98% of the people in here didn't plan on being there yesterday. Peter, age 37, Jamie, age 39. John, who raised his four children after his wife predeceased him. You know, we need to have our money available to us for the expected times in life, all those magical ages, and then the unexpected. Because if you can alleviate a financial concern and the angst around, will I be able to make it? 
in these highly emotional and often unexpected moments in life. The rest is almost on autopilot. I mean, yes, the advisor will monitor that and rebalance that. But from the client's perspective, they want to know if there's enough money in the budget. They want to know how much they can spend now, Matt, without endangering their ever-increasing lifetime income stream. Isn't that really what we all want? Spot on. That's spot on. That's a, I mean, that's the simplest way of thinking about it, right? And I think it's a matter of, and I always tell people, right, to your point, the unexpected is going to happen, right? Let's set that expectation and let's plan for the unexpected when things are good, not when things are crazy and unexpected has happened. That's not the time to start making the changes. It's when things are good and you don't expect something to happen is right. when you make those changes. And, you know, one of the things that, that we're, we're also going to give away to our listeners is is your jumpstart checklist. And tell us a little bit about what that is, how it helps people, because I think it helps with what we're talking about here in terms of helping to set that plan and understand what you need to do. It does. And thanks for that, Matt. It, it, I basically kind of thought in my head, uh, okay, when you get right down to it, what are a big, big areas that you, that everyone really needs to address and attend to? your beneficiary designation. I do not know how many times after a divorce, the beneficiary designation is not changed and the first partner gets the death benefit. This is mm. not funny. And so I deal with, and I thought I had it right here. Oh, I do have it right here. <laughs> Basically have you, I don't want to give away so people don't even go there, but they will want to go there because it's wonderful. So I'm talking about umbrella liability policy and auto insurance and disability insurance and long-term care insurances and social security choices. And how about your will and your legal stuff? And how about your investments are the optimally positioned? I don't know how many times I've seen like a person brings in their statements and they're Roth and they're traditional and they're after tax investments, all using the same mutual funds. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, how about the integration of tax minimization when we're talking about investment portfolio construction, right? It's completely lost on some of these people. And so the aspect of being intentional about our money and managing our risks, Matt, recognizing our risks, quantifying them, which risks do I want to take? It's, it's acceptable for me to take small risks. And then which risks, which I call groups of zero risks, do I want to pass on to an insurance company in exchange for a premium? Mm. And I think that is a very, very critical choice that we want to make. And I think that some people feel like if they write a will, they're going to die, right? And I think that some people don't understand life insurance at all. They just hate to pay it. I'll tell you when. I, I, I sold life insurance for 19 years. I was a million-dollar roundtable, sold a lot of it. I never went to a widow or a widower and they said, oh, take that back. Take, I don't need that ever. And I delivered a few death benefit checks. So I like to distill life insurance for an example, right? It's the highest commissionable product that anyone can sell. I get it. And it followed closely by variable annuities. But let's talk about where the rubber meets the road. I always said, partner A, partner B. Partner A is making $100,000 a year. And I would say to them, Jim, you died yesterday. How many years do you want to buy Jane to recover? Four or five years? Yeah. You got a $200,000 mortgage? You want to wipe that off so she doesn't have to have that? And you have little kids, you want to put $50,000 away now so that it grows into something sizable when they're of age of college or whatever it will look like or starting a business? Great. 
So four years, hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand mortgage. That's six hundred thousand fifty for the kids. Six hundred fifty thousand. Any questions? Jane, you're making you know one hundred and fifty. You know how many years do you want to buy? That's what we want to think about as advisors when we're speaking with our clients about life insurance. It buys time. End of story, period. Then bring them back. It buys time for the survivors to be able to emote and grieve. And it's not a process that people can process that swiftly. Never. And so if we get down to what is it ultimately? I don't give two rips about the standard and poor 500 and how your quarterly performance bested or underperformed because I have seen too many people on their deathbed and I can assure you that they would exchange groups of zeros of net worth for one more dance with their partner, one more fishing trip with their grandkid. And no one is talking about their quarterly performance relative to the standard and poor. And if we as advisors can't get off our own book training to where people are living and empathize with their struggles, we are missing the mark and we probably will not retain that woman widow after the male with whom we have often talked because she has not felt heard or understood. And that's just almost malpractice, if you ask me. You're, you're, you're leading into one of the pieces that we do at the podcast as we close up, because we, you know this conversation, we can continue to talk for hours, but we, we got to let the listeners get back to their day jobs and let you get back to empowering women and uh, their financial independence. And there's two questions I'd like to ask at the end. And the first one is, what is a book, other than maybe a book that you've written or, or et cetera, but that every buddy needs to read in your perspective one book that you think people should read that would better them better their clients better their business whatever it may be well certainly for widowed folks my book and i have no problem promoting it because the people that have been in the situation have written me and said yes 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 and that's when you know you've you know you've hit on it so my husband died now what wonderful for that and yet you're asking me for one book and I'll, and I'll hold up this book and it's not financial, Matt. That's okay. It's my dear late friend, Dr. Susan Jeffers. She wrote about 10 New York Times bestsellers. And this book is called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And of course that is trademarked. And you see how dog-eared it is. Now, the reason I love this book is because Susan outlines what is a pain power continuum. And on the pain side, we might see feel helplessness and depression and paralysis. And on the power side, we have the option of feeling choice or excitement or action. And the idea of a continuum, Matt, is so beautiful because we might slip into helplessness at certain circumstances of our lives. But then we understand through Dr. Jeffers' writing that it's a continuum and we can slide over towards a more powerful approach and emotion, and that is choice. If we're depressed, we can slide over to excitement. And if we're paralyzed, we can slide over to action. And so life is a series of sliding, and we, and yet we know that there's a better choice available to us. And so... It probably sounds a, a little silly for a financial advisor and a financial coach to talk about feel the fear and do it anyway. And yet their 
are a lot of fears in life. And if we do not know how, and Dr. Jeffers is, is quick to say, we must conclude if, if, if everyone is out there feeling fear and yet some people are actually doing it, we must conclude that fear is not the problem, Matt. It's how we hold the fear. And now I think how advisors hold their clients' fears is going to separate out the more winning advisors in terms of winning and, and integrating their clients and giving their clients an experience that's not only rich from a dollar and cents of percentage return standpoint, but rich in terms of them looking back and say, I don't think we would have gone on those vacations had we not been in relationship with a professional financial advisor. And that's what I want us as advisors and you as advisors, I'm no longer one. I want the advisors listening in to understand that there are a lot of people that have been and may still be paralyzed with fear. And let's help them hold the fear in an empowering way because money is so charged. It's more than this. And once we understand the vicissitudes of around money, and we tease out from people, hey, what, what did you feel like the first paycheck you got? When did, what did your parents do? And now we get into them saying, what was their experience? And we write it down and we take a note and we attempt to put ourselves in those shoes. And how would we like to be treated? No one's looking for an advisor to give you an investment portfolio. You can do that with a robo-advisor. The, 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 the cream which has risen to the top is they want their advisor to listen to them and empathize with them. And that's what I'll leave your audience with is let's be good questioners and better listeners. You, you answered both my questions there, the book and the one piece of actionable advice, be a better listener will be a better advisor. Deborah Morrison, this has been incredible. Where can people continue to find you, follow you, and stay in touch to learn more from you? Well, I'm in LinkedIn, of course, Facebook. I have a few groups on Facebook, uh, Women Empowerment by Deborah Morrison, Widow Empowerment by Deborah Morrison, Women Navigating Finances on Facebook, and of course, my website, womennavigatingfinances.com. Let's do this thing. We can do it. Yes, we can. I love it. Deborah Morrison, you stay well. Keep pushing the message. We will do the same here. Thank you for all you do and have done. And thank you for joining us here on Bridging the Gap. Stay well, okay? Thank you, Matt. You too. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 